Living Life Fuller, journeying toward independence through homeschooling, homesteading, and a whole lot more. Welcome to Living Life Fuller, Episode 6, Turkey Time on the Homestead. First off, I want to say, sorry, last time we were doing a little bit of a new audio setup. Previously, we'd been recording in our living room with a single microphone, and last time we had two new microphones and we were recording in our bedroom and found out we were getting a little bit of an echo off of the walls and things. So anyway, um, we'll try and work on a little bit better setup this time around. It'll probably take us a few times to kind of get it ironed out. But anyway, I just wanted to let you know the story behind that, and hopefully this episode sounds a little bit better. Uh, Let's start off tonight with the drink of the episode. Stephanie? Yeah, the drink of the episode tonight is an Old Elk straight bourbon whiskey. This particular bottle was one I got to be part of a barrel pick on that was a uniquely women's pick. It was fun. Cool. I want to tell people a little bit about about that experience and maybe a little bit about Old Elk. Yeah, Old Elk's in uh, Colorado. Uh, Fort Collins. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, Fort Collins. And uh, it was during the weird COVID stuff, obviously, that we did this pick. So we were doing it via Zoom. Uh, We all had samples and were in different rooms. And it was fun, though. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of neat. We had never done barrel picks prior to this year. And then Stephanie got to do two of them. Uh, We talked about the Starlight one on the last episode. And so... Anyway, yeah, it's kind of kind of cool to be experiencing some of that stuff. So Thanksgiving is coming up, and uh, that's kind of a holiday with some mixed emotions for me. When I was uh, when I was in third grade, my mom passed away of cancer, and that was the the night after uh, after Thanksgiving. There, so I went to bed Thanksgiving Day, and then um, the pastor and and my father came over and just kind of woke me up and, and let me know. Um, that she had passed away that night. So it's kind of one of those things I always get a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit melancholy around some of the holidays and things. It's not one of those things where it's a super big deal for me anymore. But uh, I think this year with all the crazy COVID stuff, I'm I'm kind of doubling down on wanting to spend spend time with family. So now we're not going to have a huge get together necessarily, but we've got, we've got a a turkey that I'm sure is going to be over 30 pounds. It's not going to, it's not going to get eaten by just seven people. So looking forward to that. And uh, since most people are probably going to be doing turkey as well, we thought uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about raising turkeys and uh, making turkeys and things of that nature. So um, Stephanie, let's start out just talk a little bit about raising the turkeys and, and maybe some of the similarities versus, and differences versus chickens. I know a lot of people, when they do kind of backyard flocks, they start out with chickens. So um, there's probably some people listening that, that don't do poultry either, but maybe let's talk about a few things uh, in regards to how they're the same, how they're different. Yeah. I mean, the biggest difference obviously is the size. You basically raise them the same way. They require the same bedding, the same kind of food, water system, uh, all that. The turkeys are going to require a lot more space than the chickens, though. Uh, Chickens, you need like one to two square feet inside the coop. And for turkeys, you're talking four minimum. And that's not counting the space outside the the coop in the run where they're going to have room to run around. Right. 
Right. I mean, obviously, birds can be raised in confinement, but on a homestead, why would you? <laughs> yeah, if you got the space, they're they're happier, and they get a chance to forage then as well. And uh, you know, they're going to eat most of their their food uh, from from the grain trough or feeder that you have set up. But if they do have access to things like bugs and stuff um, and vegetation, they're they're happy to eat that as well. Yeah. Um, at the start, they're a little bit stupider than chicks. Um, baby chicks just eat and drink and go under the lamp when they need to, and baby turkeys will just forget. Yeah, sometimes they'll just go without eating and literally starve themselves to death, or they'll forget to, you know, drink, or they'll just, hey, I'm going to go park myself under the heat lamp and just kind of roast. So the hardest part is getting them past that first couple of weeks uh, if if they, they don't have uh, an adult bird, whether that's a chicken or uh, another turkey to raise them, they can kind of, uh, they can kind of struggle, but we did all right. We lost one as one when they were a couple weeks old and then one more at about a month or so. Um, but they otherwise have done really well. I expected to lose a lot after everything I read <laughs> about how dumb they were as bolts. Um, another big difference, I guess a lot of chickens can fly, but, uh, Turkeys really, really love to fly the heritage breeds, not the broad-breasted breeds. Um, the broad-breasted be breeds get really huge and <laughs> even walk funny and have leg problems because they're so big, can't reproduce naturally, certainly can't fly. But the heritage breeds love to fly. And before we covered over the run, they'd be coming up every evening to the deck or the roof and, you know, they'd come down for food, but. <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely one of those things if you're going to have, especially the heritage breeds, you're going to need to clip the wings or put some sort of a cover on the run to keep them in. Um, they're also a little, uh, I'm not going to say less picky, but they don't need quite as um, enclosed of a shelter. They can do a little bit better with a little bit more ventilation than, than chickens. They want to be out of the draft and out of the cold and, and wet, but. <laughs> A three-sided shelter with the open side facing south is pretty good. Uh, I mean, obviously, you want a door gate or something for predator protection, but uh, they don't really need warmth. Yeah, on ours we use uh, we use a dog kennel door. That's kind of a you know a mesh door on hinges or whatever that we bought just at the hardware store and, and kind of installed it in between two of the the posts that form our our little turkey coop. I've noticed that uh, as far as getting them in the coop at night, chickens are a lot more routine driven than turkeys. The chickens will all come in right away as soon as the sun goes down, and the turkeys just stand around going, "What are we supposed to do now?" <laughs> Yeah, it seems like they'll either stand out there in the little run between the chicken coop and the turkey run and the bigger open open area, or half of them will go into the chicken coop with the chickens. It's like they just don't get it. And and even if you go out there and you kind of, I've gotten to the point where I can kind of whistle to them and they'll follow me. They'll follow me around the corner over to the opening of their coop, and then maybe one or two will go in, and then they're just kind of like, uh, okay, and then they'll walk out. They're they're just definitely not as easy to to get into that routine, like you said. They're just they're curious and they're I don't know. It's not that they're dumb animals, but they're no, just, they're not. They're just different, and they're they're not 
they're not as willing to follow that routine and kind of know what's going on. No, they're very curious animals. Uh, when you go out into the yard, the chickens will ignore you and the turkeys will run up like, hey, did you bring me treats? All right. So the next thing we're going to talk about is butchering a turkey. So if this is not something that interests you, if this is something that might gross you out or you just don't want to think about it, feel free to fast forward several minutes. Uh, at some point, we'll, we'll talk about uh, cooking them after that. So if, if that's something that you want to bypass, uh, now's your chance. So in terms of butchering, we kind of... We kind of learned a few lessons here when we butchered, I don't know, what, four the other weekend? Yeah, we butchered four of the broad-breasted white turkeys. Uh, not the biggest one, so we'll <laughs> see how that goes probably Wednesday. But uh, these ranged from 24 to 29 pounds once they were completely dressed out. Uh, so if you've butchered a chicken, it's just like that, but a lot bigger. If you've never butchered, butchered poultry at all before... Um, I'll give you a quick rundown. So, uh, the first thing you want to do is get your table ready and knives, um, big pot of water, uh, heating up outside. Get everything set before you start the process. (laughs) Right. Um, and then you need to kill the bird. The most humane way, uh, is probably to bleed it out. Um, you can cut the whole head off if that's what you want to do. Um, but bleeding it out makes it go unconscious really quickly. Birds feel relaxed upside down, so with when we did roosters, we just hung them upside down from a tree. Turkeys by their legs, by their legs right? Turkeys are a little bit bigger than that, and these particular turkeys we didn't want to hurt by trying to lift by the legs. So what we ended up doing is rigging a system with a laundry basket uh, with a hole in the middle and. It took two of us to get the turkey upside down into the laundry basket with its head hanging out the hole at the bottom. And then we run a dowel through the laundry basket handles and hung that up on a stepladder so that the whole thing was elevated um, and the turkey's head was about a foot off the ground. And this was one of those sort of soft-sided laundry baskets that's kind of very flexible and floppy, not, not one that has like a hard rim that maintains its shape. I'd recommend something sturdier in the future. <laughs> well, I think I think it was sturdy enough. It just had the holes that the the talons would get caught in, and it was yeah. maybe so, maybe almost too big for a couple of them. Right. Um, so once they're upside down in the thing, um, just kind of hold your hand behind their head and make a couple sharp, deep cuts, and they'll. Uh, start spurting blood and they'll pass out really quickly. But when an animal dies, it flops around a little bit, the whole, you know, chicken with the heads cut off, run around thing. The Keeping it contained in the basket is supposed to prevent it from flopping around and bruising itself up. But like he said, with the holes in the basket, sometimes the talons would get hooked and one or two flip themselves out. We considered getting a what's called a kill cone, which is essentially a a cone-shaped device that you attach to a post or something like that to keep it stationary. But most of the ones we had seen uh, reviewed for turkeys just didn't didn't sound like they were all that effective. So Right. So that's how we rigged it up. Anyway, once the turkey stops thrashing around, it's dead. Uh, You've got your water heated up to about 145, 150. Uh, You take the bird, you put it in. We bought a 64 quart pot 
and it was big enough for the turkeys we did the other day, but it might not be big enough for the tom we've got left. Yeah, and, and you can find something like that. I'll see if I can find um, a good example on Amazon, but we got that one at Bass Pro Shop, um, and it has a spigot on the front as well, which makes it really nice because when you're when you're done using it, you can open that spigot and, and drain the water out so you don't have to try and carry this big old pot of water to dump. So you basically submerge the bird, whole bird if you can, um, use a big wooden spoon, keep it under the water. After a few minutes, you kind of pull up a wing, pull up a couple of flight feathers and if they come out right away then it's done or check the skin on the feet and if that starts to peel off really easily then it's done and you pull the bird out and while it's still hot and wet you just get all of the feathers off as quickly as you can before it cools off uh, at that point you can give the bird a rinse with a hose if you want and start working on the actual uh, gutting process to do that you can take off the feet, just cut a circle around the feet and bend <laughs> at the joint and pull those off. Then if you're facing the bird on its back uh, with the head away from you, you reach down under the breastbone and grab a little bit of skin and just cut a little hole in the skin. It doesn't have to be huge, just you know, a little bit of a hole. Be careful not to poke into the bird. Obviously, you don't want to puncture any intestines or anything. Once you get a little bit of a hole, you can reach a finger to and cut down a little bit towards the vent, but not through it, just to either side of it and get a little hole. Once you have a hole, you can put your finger in and reach as far up into the bird as you can, grab as much as you can and pull straight out. If, at that point, you should be pulling out heart, gizzard, and intestines. Uh, once you have those all clear of the bird, you can cut completely around the vent and pull all of that away. If you want to save the heart, liver, or gizzard, you can do that before you discard them. Yeah, ideally, you should pull all that out without opening up the bowel or or the bladders, the other things sometimes you'll nick. Um, if you do that, just try and get it out as quickly as you can and then rinse it out. Um, it's not the end of the world. Um, just want to make sure you get that bird extra Washed. clean. Yes. Um, okay, so once you've done that, reach your fingers back in and feel along the back of the bird. You should feel ribs and dig your fingers in between the, ring, the ribs to make sure you pull out any lung tissue that didn't get removed the first time. Okay, once that part of the bird's clean, flip it around. You can take the head all the way off if you didn't earlier. Uh, and then you'll want to cut the skin up the neck and then cut the neck off closer to the body. Then right at that spot where the neck attaches, you'll, you can reach in and ha there'll be a little almost bag of feed. And that's called their crop. It's basically <laughs> a pre-stomach. It's where they store the food that they've recently eaten. Uh, if you're butchering your own bird, it makes sense to not feed them that morning so that that's empty. If it's full, it doesn't matter. That's not going to contaminate your food in any way. I think I found it easier to pull that out before I remove the neck because it does sit right at the base. Okay. Um, and it depends how full it is. Ours, because they were being fed from the new feeder setup we had where they're continuously fed, they already had a pretty full crop for the day. So it was good to get it out of the way. Right. Um, but th that's easy enough to kind of pull and get out of there. And you'll know, uh, you'll know when you come across it whether you need to get it out of the way. And then also check that same area for trachea and esophagus if you couldn't pull that out from the back side. 
Yep, absolutely. And you can save that neck if you want to. Some people like it, some people don't. If you don't want to roast it on, on the bone or whatever, it makes a really good, um, a really soup. good addition to your soup. Yeah, absolutely. Same thing with feet. A lot of people don't save feet. If you do save them, peel all the exterior layer of skin and nail off, but then they're fine and you can use it at stock to make stock. Yeah, that's one thing I didn't know until we did the ducks the other day uh, that you could actually or sorry, the chickens the other day, that you can actually pop that outside um, claw off the nail. Mm-hmm. Kind of an interesting thing. I always wondered how people ate. You know, some people some people like to eat chicken feet or, or other poultry feet. And I just, I had, I was like, why would you want to do that when they've been scratched around and all their own poop and dirt and stuff like that? And well, that makes sense if you can remove that skin and nail. Not something we necessarily want to eat whole, but I, I don't know if we saved them to put in the soup. I did. So, obviously, the whole reason you're butchering this thing is so you can eat it. Usually around here, my job is to cook the turkey. I don't know how that came to be. I think I did it one time, and and, and your family was always like, hey, you want to do it? Or even if they don't, I usually get stuck doing the gravy, which we'll talk about separately. We prefer to uh, oven roast our turkey. There are uh, a few considerations that we have for that, and I'll just kind of let you know what we do. I know everybody has their own way they prefer to do turkey, and again, this is just an opinion, but uh, what I do is I will pat the turkey dry with paper towel. Um, If you are using a frozen turkey and not a fresh turkey, make sure you are um, getting any of the ice out of the inside of it. I I don't recommend rinsing the turkey necessarily because um, that can spread salmonella to your various surfaces if the bird uh, happens to be contaminated in that way. If you're doing a store-bought turkey, make sure you pull that bag of giblets out of the inside first. Yeah, that's that's the other thing. But if you do have a lot of ice in there, it may help to run a little bit of hot water and break that up. Now, fortunately, not the, the bag of giblets, but any ice that's in there. Um, fortunately for us, since we'll probably be butchering our Thanksgiving turkey on Wednesday. Um, It's just going to go straight to the refrigerator and there shouldn't be any ice. But anyway, patting that dry will help remove the the excess moisture so you can get your oil and seasonings and things to stick to it. So I like to use an olive oil. I'll just rub a light coating of olive oil on the whole exterior of the turkey. And then I'll use kosher salt, which is kind of that thick salt, a little bit um, thicker granules than table salt. What's nice about that is it's easier to sprinkle that if you take big old pinches of that and just sprinkle it all over as well as some black pepper thyme sage and rosemary if you don't have those fresh you can use poultry seasoning those are basically the same things that are in dried poultry seasoning yep you can use the dried poultry seasoning or those dried individual spices Um, fresh obviously is going to add probably a little bit more distinct flavor but uh, you know use what you got if you don't have fresh herb or you can't find them at your store uh, the other thing that I like to add on there is some minced up garlic. That just kind of adds a, a nice little kick to it as well. What temperature do you use and how long? Kind of the typical recommendation you see most places is 325 degrees, and that's anywhere from 12 to 15 minutes. Sometimes you'll see higher recommendations, but the typical recommendation that I've seen is up to 15 minutes per pound. So I would recommend airing a little bit on the long side giving yourself a little bit of extra time especially if you have a very big bird if you're doing uh you know a 10 to 15 pound bird it's probably not not going to be as difficult but sometimes on those bigger birds that are you know 22 24 pounds especially if they've been frozen those can take a while to fully cook through now rather than just timing it i use a meat thermometer 
and you're going to want to check that it, the bird gets to 165 in the breast and also back in the thigh. Usually that part where the thigh connects to the body is, is the spot where it seems like it takes the longest to cook, especially, again, if you're coming from frozen. Now, you can pull it out slightly early. I If I can get both of those up to just over 160, I'll usually call it good at that point because the bird will continue to go up in heat just a little bit as it rests. But before you get to that point, what you're going to want to do is start looking for the juices to form as this thing starts cooking out. And that might take an hour or so. But once you start getting a, a pool of juice, baste that about every 30 minutes. So take your baster, suck that up, and then drizzle it over the top of the bird and all around the exterior. That's going to help get the flavor uh, on the bird. And it's also going to help, um, again, keep that keep that skin moist and, and everything as you're going through the process of cooking it. Admit it, you just like to open the oven and smell the turkey. Yeah, that's the other part. Every half hour you get open up, get this big, nice, wafting, steamy <laughs> turkey smell. It's, it's pretty good. As you get close to 165 you might find that part of the bird gets done faster than the other a lot of times again maybe the breast will get done and you're still waiting on that thigh if you're starting to notice your your wing tips and your drumstick tips are starting to get a little bit brown uh, you can go ahead and wrap those up with a little bit of foil uh, just around them to keep them from uh keep them from getting quite so brown and dried out you can make a big foil tent for the breast meat too if you need to yeah, if you've still got quite a ways to go on the legs and uh, and you really don't want to dry out that breast meat, uh, putting that tent over it, even when it's uh you know if if it's in the 150s and your and your thighs are like say in the 130s or something like that and you're like well I know I'm gonna have quite a while to go, go ahead and tent that over that just kind of reflects some of the heat off of it from the oven and uh, again helps keep that breast meat from drying out. The other trick you mentioned briefly, but is the resting period that's really important. Once you get the bird up to temperature, pull it out of the oven. What I like to do is transfer it from the roasting pan over to um, to maybe a cutting board, ideally a cutting board that's sitting inside of a, some type of a baking sheet or something that'll catch any juices that run off. But as Stephanie was saying, if you let it rest, just cover it over with that foil tent and let it sit there. It's going to cool slightly and those juices are going to absorb back into the, the muscle tissue. If you carve a turkey right away, and this applies to, you know, doing other meat as well, if you cut into it right away, right after you've taken off the heat, all that juice is going to run out. It's going to do two things. It's going to take out a lot of the flavor, and it's also going to dry out the meat. Okay, so now the turkey's out. It's resting. How do you make the gravy? Yeah, this is the fun part for me. What I like to do is take that baster, and you're going to transfer all the liquid from the roasting pan... And the caveat to this is don't use a, a liner bag in your roasting pan. Put the bird directly in it, or maybe it's sitting up on uh, one of the little stands inside there. But don't, don't line your roasting pan with anything at the beginning of this. So you're going to transfer that liquid out with a baster into about like a four-cup measuring cup. Once you have all of that liquid removed, you'll see the fat float on top of the clear liquids. And you want to spoon off a few tablespoons, maybe three to five tablespoons of that, and and reserve that in a small frying pan just set aside. Then you're going to want to take a spoon or the baster, remove the remainder of the fat that's floating on the surface there, so you're left with essentially the clear liquid. Now, what you want to do is you want to have 
about twice the volume of clear liquid as you want to end up with gravy. So if you're wanting to end up with about two full cups of gravy, make sure you top that back off to four cups. If you don't have four cups of uh, of actual juices from the bird from the roasting pan you can supplement that with a little bit of water or even some broth so once that's set aside what you want to do is you want to take your roasting pan and set it on a couple of burners on top of your stove you're going to heat that up over a, a medium high heat until the all the little bits on the bottom start to char up a little bit and and dry out and start crackling a little bit you don't want to burn turkey bacon turkey bacon yeah, so nice little little chunky bits. That's gonna add the flavor to your gravy. Then what you're gonna do is take, um, I like to use white wine, a dry white wine, Chardonnay prefer is my preference. I like the Kendall Jackson Ventures Reserve, but you can use um, you can use another white wine, or if you're you know if you're opposed to using wine, you can use uh, chicken broth or even water to deglaze your pan. Once uh, once you've heated up all the the little meaty bits in the bottom. And they're and they're kind of dry and crackling. What you want to do is you want to pour in enough wine to cover the surface of the roasting pan. It'll sizzle. It's gonna sizzle. And and then immediately while that's happening, take a spatula and scrape like crazy across the bottom of the pan. This is gonna do two things. Uh, number one, it's gonna clean off your pan, so it's gonna save you some time uh, in in the <laughs> sink later. Oh, it's important. But number two, you're going to take all those flavorful bits that were stuck on the bottom of the pan and you're going to pull those off to be able to use them in your gravy. So once you've deglazed the pan, you're going to pour in your clear liquids from the measuring cup and you're going to let that uh, get up to not a rolling boil, but a nice, good, heavy simmer and turn down the heat so it maintains the simmer. You let that reduce down to about 50%. That's going to concentrate those flavors. Once it's reduced down to about 50%, the next thing you want to do is take that few tablespoons of fat that you reserved in the small frying pan, get that heated up so it's uh, nice and, and hot and melted, and you're going to want to add in about the same amount of uh, white flour into there. And then you're going to stir that in into, into a paste. It's called a roux. So this is going to be your thickening agent. Once you've got that roux mixed up, then you're gonna to want to add the roux into your roasting pan and stir that in and let it heat for a couple more minutes. The longer you cook the roux, the darker it gets, the stronger a flavor it gets, also the darker your gravy gets. So keep that in mind as you're making it and throw it in when it's about the color and flavor you want. So once you've mixed that in and let it let it heat for a minute or two, you can remove it from the, the heat, let it cool for a few minutes, and then pour it into your, your serving vessel, whether that's uh, the liquid measuring cup or into a gravy boat, whatever you want. Uh, you can flavor that with a little bit of salt and pepper to taste, and you should be good to go. Again, I recommend using that wine to deglaze because that gives just a tiny little bit of tartness and with those savory flavors, it's it's really pretty good gravy. Yeah, I was never a mashed potato fan, but I love that gravy, and I like mashed potatoes with it now. <laughs> Same thing with white meat, honestly. I was never a white meat fan until you started making the turkeys, and I'm like, ooh, that's actually pretty good. At least white meat on <laughs> with, turkey. With or without the gravy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you like you like you know, chicken and, and pork and things, but you're talking about like light meat from the turkey. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'll, I'll go ahead and try and throw that recipe that I use, um, more or less kind of what I just told you, onto the show notes so show notes page. That's going to be at livinglifefuller.com slash six today. That way you can kind of follow along and we'll try and put the directions for the turkey as well. That kind of takes us through how we make the turkey and how we raise the turkey. What about what about the day after Thanksgiving? Well, what would I do with the leftover starts like immediately after thanksgiving dinner <laughs> oh, that's true everyone else is sitting around and i grab the turkey carcass and throw it in a pot and uh, start making stock so i will grab the the carcass just any little bits that you couldn't get carved off of there leave them on it's good throw the whole thing in a great big stock pot cover it with water uh, about an inch or two over the top and then uh, i throw in a few chopped up carrots, chopped up celery, roughly chopped up onions, and bring it to a boil and reduce it to a simmer. Once I've got it just simmering, I'll make a what's called a bouquet garni. Basically, you get a big thing of cheesecloth or a huge tea ball and put a bunch of herbs in it. I'll do sometimes parsley, definitely thyme, rosemary, sage, and anything else that smells good to me at the time. Just remember Scarborough <laughs> Fair, though. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, parsley, sage, rosemary, thyme. And peppercorns, definitely. Bay leaves, if you want them. Just, I go by smell. It's different every time. <laughs> and uh, tie that up and throw it in on top. Uh, you don't stir the stock as it's going. You just let it simmer for at least a couple hours. And then I strain all the bits off. Uh, pull the carcass out and remove any meat that's left on it. So you're you're not putting in that bouquet garni with the herbs right away? After it has reduced to a simmer. You don't want to boil fresh herbs. You're just going to make them bitter, right? Right. Excellent. So then any meat that's left on that will fall off really easily. Put it in a little bowl, set it aside in the fridge for when you make the soup the next day. Because right now we've just made the stock, right? Then we have to filter that. <laughs> I get a big, I make a lot. So I get a huge pot and I get a huge bowl and use my pasta strainer. And I hold the pasta strainer over the bowl and line it with cheesecloth and have Owen lift the enormous pot and pour it into uh, the big bowl it's through like, the strainer. It's like four gallons usually. At least. The nice thing about this time of year is that it's cold outside because I don't like putting hot stock in the cold fridge. So I'll just set it outside on the back deck for a couple hours and put it in the fridge before bed. And then it's ready for soup the next day. So you just, you know, get your stock that you made out, put it back in your <laughs> clean pan, and then put in any veggies you want to cook, you know, bring it to a boil, let it go till the vegetables are tender, 20 minutes or so, and then throw in your leftover turkey, any pasta you want or whatever. Yeah, any particular pasta you like to use in there? Um, I like orzo. I've done it with rotini or homemade egg noodles or whatever. Just depends how ambitious I'm feeling. Orzo is kind of nice because it's it's almost like big grains of rice. It's really easy to kind of get a scoop of that in a spoon mm -hmm. in a soup. Yeah. If I'm making a huge batch, I know is going to feed us for more than a couple of days i like to do the pasta separately and then just put that in individual bowls and pour the soup over because if you leave the pasta in the soup in the fridge 
for the next day, it get it uh, absorbs so much of the water, it just gets gross. Kind of turns to a mush. Yeah. And you can do that if you've made a big batch of stock. You know, you can you can separate that and you can do two batches of soup or whatever. You can throw some of that in, in the freezer. Right. All right. Well, hopefully that gives you some ideas on uh, raising turkey and making turkey for Thanksgiving. And, you know, that the weekend after there when you're looking for something to do with that leftover turkey besides throw it in the microwave or, you know, make a turkey sandwich or something like that. I think that's going to wrap up the episode. Yeah, I will have Owen put a link to Dave Cooks the Turkey in the show notes. Ah, yes. So our friends our friends in Congo, who are from Canada, they were there with another missionary organization. They turned us on to this guy named Stuart McLean, and he is a, a Canadian storyteller that does these awesome narrations. And he's got some recurring characters, and one of the main ones is Dave. And there's this great story about... Dave cooking it's it's actually the Christmas turkey but I think it's fitting anyway for for Thanksgiving and just all the antics and things that that he goes through to get this bird made it's great uh, it, it'd be a great little background thing for you while you're working on your Thanksgiving dinner here this week and uh, yeah we'll be sure to include a link to that so I think that's going to wrap us up for today. Thanks for joining us again for episode six. Once again, you can find us at livinglifefuller.com slash six for this episode to get the show notes, uh, which will mostly be recipes, I think, today from uh, the, the discussion we had. So we'll try and get that out there and we will see you back here next time for episode seven.